0: The fires have spread a vast plume of smoke across South America and the Atlantic Ocean that's visible from space. They're unprecedented in recorded history, and environmentalists say most of the fires were deliberately set by illegal
1: miners and cattle ranchers.
2: Brazil's president says the country can handle the situation on its
1: own. We live in struggle all the time. It's not something new. It's new for the world now because it affects the... the, the the big city like Sao Paulo. The interim
0: Brazilian diplomat says the government is working to protect the Amazon but also has an obligation
1: to provide economic development and opportunities for the more than 25 million people that lives in the Amazon region. In late August, Bernie Sanders introduced his Green New Deal plan in Paradise, California the site of the devastating campfire disaster, which all but entirely destroyed a community of 26,000 people.
2: If there is any silver lining in this terrible tragedy, in this beautiful town, is that I hope people of the United States and the people of the world understand that we need bold and aggressive action to combat climate change, which is the common enemy, not just for the United States, but for countries all over the world.
1: Bernie's plan takes seriously last year's IPCC report, which said that if we want to avoid the most cataclysmic effects of climate change, we have to have global emissions by 2030 and become carbon neutral by 2050. Now, while other candidates are less ambitious, Sanders' plan will decarbonize transportation and power generation, the two largest sources of U.S. emissions by 2030. It will also lower U.S. emissions by 71%. We will invest in countries abroad, too, and reduce emissions among less industrialized nations by 36% by 2030. Now, that's the total equivalent of reducing our domestic emissions by 161%. Bernie's plan will cost $16.3 trillion. But, as always, Bernie has a plan to pay for that. Revenue from publicly owned renewable energy will generate trillions of dollars. Additional revenue will come from taxes on the 20 million good-paying jobs the plan will generate. We save over a trillion dollars from no longer using our military to maintain global oil dependence. And my favorite part, the plan makes the fossil fuel industry pay for the cost of their pollution, rather than the government paying them $15 billion in subsidies every year. Bernie's plan is as big as the problem at hand and the solutions presented by the Sanders campaign are unmatched in the 2020 field. But while some media outlets rightly treated the plan as such, the Green New Deal continues to get short shrift from the mainstream media. In the week and a half since it aired, mainstream cable news channels devoted minimal time to covering it, perhaps not surprising considering that the major broadcast news shows devoted a combined 142 minutes to climate change in the entirety of 2018. On top of ignoring the issue, bad faith articles attempted to minimize the stakes, with headlines claiming Bernie's vision of the Green New Deal will accomplish nothing, would take us nowhere, and would be too much for voters. The New York Times concern-trolled about the political prospects of the plan, even though 80% of all registered voters, not just Democrats, support a Green New Deal. The Wall Street Journal even compared Bernie's climate policy to Mao's great leap forward. But if we're evoking 20th century heads of state, the three-letter name you're looking for isn't Mao Zedong, but FDR. The original New Deal completely transformed the US economy in three years in order to respond to a world war being fought on two fronts. It's no exaggeration to say the environmental crisis at hand is equally dire. In his viral 2017 article on the climate crisis, David Wallace-Wells wrote that no matter how well-informed you are, you surely aren't alarmed enough. Two degrees of warming, which used to be considered the threshold of catastrophe, is now our best-case scenario. Already, 339,000 people die from wildfire smoke each year. In 2013, smog was responsible for a third of all deaths in China. For every half degree of warming, Scientists say we'll see between a 10 and 20% increase in the likelihood of armed conflict. There are already over 65 million climate refugees, and as more and more of the world becomes uninhabitable, those numbers will grow. Don't forget, the Amazon is burning. So, why no action? With the stakes this high and with such popular bipartisan support behind the Green New Deal, You'd think the Democratic Party would jump on this opportunity to lead. But the DNC has thumbed its nose at the priorities of Democratic voters voting down a climate-themed debate last month. Apparently insufficiently moved by the protests from the Sunrise Movement, the DNC voted down a resolution for a climate debate 8 to 17. Which side are you on, the protesters saying? Which side indeed? Simone Sanders, a senior advisor for the Joe Biden campaign, argued that to have a climate debate was, quote, dangerous territory because it would open the door to a debate on black women or Latinx issues or the indigenous community. But among other problems with that statement is that her argument ignores the extent to which those very communities are particularly impacted by climate change. Environmental racism isn't an afterthought in Bernie's Green New Deal plan, but a priority. Black and Latinx communities deal with 56 and 63% more air pollution, respectively, than they create. Tribal lands are only 4% of the U.S. land base, but a quarter of our Superfund hazardous waste sites. And the vast majority of our abandoned uranium mines are an in Indian country. Genuine concern for the interests of Black and brown Americans should lead one to endorse a climate debate, not oppose it. And weaponizing identity to derail an opportunity to hold the next, President of the United States accountable for how they'll handle this global crisis? Well, let's just say that's not a choice I would make. The bottom line is that the cost of inaction is greater than the cost of action. Economists estimate that we will lose $34.5 trillion in economic activity by the end of the century if we don't respond now. By acting, we will save $70 trillion over the next 80 years. David Von Dreil at the Washington Post compared Bernie Sanders' climate plan to Trump's wall of all things, arguing that they are equally fantastical. The real fantasy though, is thinking that there's any alternative. More than half of the carbon emissions that have been produced by the burning of fossil fuels in the history of humanity have been produced in the last 30 years, 85% since World War II. The Green New Deal has been described as a moonshot, but what's at stake is much greater than the Russians beating us to the moon. It's the fate of the planet itself. And for that, Bernie's got a plan. This is Hear the Burn, a podcast about the people, ideas, and politics but are driving the Bernie Sanders 2020 campaign and the movement to secure a dignified life for everyone living in this country. My name is Brianna Joy Gray, and I'm coming to you from campaign headquarters in Washington, DC. This week, I spoke to David Wallace-Wells, author of The Uninhabitable Earth, about the stakes of this climate crisis. I then spoke to journalist Kate Aronoff about why she thinks Bernie's plan, because it is more radical than others, is more likely to succeed. I'm so glad to be joined today by David Wallace Wells, author of The Uninhabitable Earth. That book came first from an article that you wrote. I I, I gotta say, I read that article and I reread it in advance of doing this interview and it is uh, chilling. So what you what you able to unpack, are able to unpack in the course of, of that piece is exactly what the stakes are, what the potential possible outcomes are for uh, the environmental crisis that we're in right now. And you're able to do so in a way with a specificity and a kind of visceralness that really drives home the point in a way that I don't think normally comes across in the way this issue is discussed in the media. So I wanted to ask you, To kind of give us a gloss, if you could, of which of the possible climate outcomes rattle you the most?
2: Well, you know, the thing that I worry about most is probably just the direct heat effects, which is it's already being felt in parts of the U.S., but the impacts are going to be much more intense in other parts of the world, the global south, and really in particular in in India and other parts of South Asia, where as soon as 2050, which Sounds like it's long ways away, but is, you know, the length of a mortgage. It's, you know, when my daughter who was just born is going to be thinking about having children of her own, um, it's not that far away. And just by then, we could see um, direct heat that was so intense that major cities like Calcutta, which today have, I don't know, 10 or 12 million people living in them, would be literally unlivably hot in summer. You couldn't go outside during summer without risking heat stroke and death. That is one reason why the UN thinks... That if we don't check warming soon, by 2050, we'll have 200 million refugees or more. They think it's possible we could have a billion re- climate refugees, which is as many people as today live in North and South America combined. Now, obviously, all of this is up to what we do now. Um, I think it's really important for everyone to keep in mind, especially in the context of a kind of political campaign and um, proposals that are being put forward to address this issue, that when we talk about the scary, even terrifying outcomes that are possible, ultimately those are a reflection of how much power we still have over the climate. The only thing that's gonna make the planet really inhospitable is if we choose to make it that way. And that means that we can make a different set of choices and produce a very different world. There will still be some additional warming which produces some additional suffering. Practically speaking, I think that's locked in. But how much suffering is really a choice that we can make today based on how quickly we decarbonize, how quickly we start to take carbon out of the atmosphere, and how quickly we can transform all of these areas of modern life which produce a carbon footprint, which is unfortunately just about every area of modern life. That's how universal this problem really is.
1: So to that point, you know, something that Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez often points to is the fact that 50% of the carbon emissions that we're currently working with were created during the course of her lifetime uh, in the last 30 years. So that is both some, a fact that I find to be hopeful and extraordinarily alarming i think that you say in in your piece that 80 percent has happened or something like that has, has be, uh, been generated since uh, world war one so these are these are very recent effects that have been the result of more approximate industrialization and therefore arguably should not be perceived as something that's like the way the world always has to be
2: yeah, I mean, some of the numbers are even more alarming than that. Yesterday, I was just in New York when Greta Thunberg arrived on her, on her trip from Sweden. She's 16 years old. More than a third of all of the emissions that we've ever produced in the entire history of humanity have come during her lifetime. More than a third. I was just putting some of this stuff on Twitter, but more than a third of all the emissions that we've ever produced have come since Tom Brady won his first Super Bowl. I think we fall into a trap when we think of this as the legacy of the industrial revolution, which started several centuries ago. And it also allows us to not feel personally responsible, because if it was something that our ancestors did, um, in many cases, not even our ancestors, but the ancestors of our oppressors, then we don't necessarily feel so driven to take action ourselves. But honestly, you know, I'm a I'm a relatively well off white guy who grew up in New York in the starting in the 80s and the 90s not only has this damage been done almost entirely during my lifetime to a degree that when I was born the planet's climate was stable and today we're facing um, the crisis you know the, the we're on the threshold of catastrophe but it was done largely in my name to benefit people like me um, at the expense of people elsewhere in the world who are going to be suffering much much more intensely both within the United States where the um, impacts are going to be concentrated in the parts of the country that are least able to respond to them because of poverty and discrimination, but similarly around the world where it will be those with the least who are being hit most intensely. There was a a recent study quite eye-opening to me that showed that um, already many countries in the global south have already lost about 25% of potential GDP growth over the last four decades because of climate change. And by the end of the century, if we continue on the path that we're heading on now, many of those countries will have the very hope of any economic growth at all wiped out from climate change. It's a little misleading to talk in economic terms because real estate in Bangladesh doesn't count the same as real estate in Miami Beach, and it's it, these things don't always add up neatly. But on, on another level, I think it does give you a nice sense of just how all-encompassing and total this challenge is, that no one will escape it. That everyone's lives will be affected to some degree, whether you're a Midwestern farmer who's been dealing with, you know, flooded cropland now since the end of the fall to California, where we've had wildfires burning through millions of acres every year. I did a piece a, a few months ago about the California wildfires, and I spoke to Eric Garcetti, the mayor of LA. He's 48 years old. The year he was born. California burned uh, 60,000 acres were burned um, in California forest fires. the year he was re- he was elected mayor in 2013 it was 600,000 so a tenfold increase. The year he was re-elected mayor in 2017 it was 1.2 million so a doubling in just two years in just four years and last year 2018 it was 1.9 million. Now so far this year luckily, the fires have not been as intense in California as in the last few years. But scientists say they'll probably double and probably perhaps quadruple by mid-century. And then beyond mid-century, they say we can't even make reliable predictions because the entire ecosystem would have been so burned over at that point. We don't know what kind of plant life will grow back in the aftermath and so we can't make predictions about how flammable it will be
1: well what's what's so extraordinary is in your piece you 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 say something about how um you, you raise the concerns about uh, once 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 uh, once every hundred years drought that apparently happens in the amazon that results in all these forest fires and you know what will we do if someday these fires became more rampant it could burn up the whole the whole amazon and here we are just two years later looking at that speculative eventuality (laughs) like it is truly galling the the breakneck speed at which this stuff is coming upon us which begs the question of why more politicians haven't been responsive with the level of exigency that's required to meet this and there is a political answer i think but also there's this kind of um psychic answer, which 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 gets to why citizens, even though, and, you know, I've heard you, you describe yourself as someone who was, before writing about this stuff, interested, aware, but not as engaged as you are now. Why are so many of us interested, well-meaning, engaged, but not necessarily acting with the level of immediacy that this crisis
2: requires? To start with, I think We don't want to believe that we're facing the scale of um, crisis and danger that we truly are, where we find it much more comfortable to think that our lives will continue in much the way that we expected them to a decade or so ago. I think it's also a really powerful reminder that when we look out our window every day, when we walk down the street every day, we are having experiences of the present tense climate, which sort of make us believe that that will continue. Even if we know at some abstract level that things are changing, they will continue to change. Our expectations for the future are so anchored in our experience of the present that it's sort of hard for us to even take seriously projections that suggest things are going to change quite dramatically. I also think at the political level, our politics really across the West have been so focused on the principle of economic growth for several decades now. And for a long time, it was kind of economic conventional wisdom that climate change could be tragic in a humanitarian way, but that its economic impacts were going to be relatively small and taking action against them would be quite expensive because you'd have to invest dramatically in certain things. And also you'd have to sort of, you know, rec- retire coal plants before they were of retire- retirement age. And that meant that the sort of conventional wisdom of econo- of economists was, we don't need to rush into action here. Even if the scientists are worried, the the math doesn't add up for us. And that really shaped, I think, our policy approach to the subject for a very long time. Now, thankfully, I mean, in a certain sense, it's grotesque, but thankfully we now have a new economic conventional wisdom in part because the people studying this stuff most intensely are raising their estimates for how expensive inaction on climate would be. And in part because they see much more growth opportunity in reimagining our economy along the lines that um, climate action would require. And so it's now the case that almost all economists agree that fast action would be better for us economically than slow action. There was a report last year suggesting globally, we could add $26 trillion to the global economy um, through rapid decarbonization by just 2030, which is really quite fast. And I think that we're beginning to see in the commitments of say, UK Parliament to zero out zero out their carbon emissions by 2050, or the government of Denmark, who's cutting their planning to cut their emissions by 70% by 2030, we're beginning to see this new economic wisdom sort of shape our policies for the first time. But it's only happened in the last year, and only with the help of these incredible climate mobilization movements, Greta, I mentioned earlier, with the climate strike, Extinction Rebellion in the UK, Sunrise and Zero Hour here in the US. These movements were... On some level, to me, as someone who, until relatively recently, was, as you say, engaged but not an activist on this subject, frankly, I'm, I'm shocked and astonished at how much um, movement there's been politically on this subject over the last year, really in the aftermath of this quite alarming UN report from last October, um, but it's also exhilarating. Um, it shows just how much people really do care about this issue, which we were told for so long that People just didn't care enough.
1: It feels to me, as someone who's, you know, a part of a campaign um, that is like a part of a genuinely populist movement, what it feels like to me is that as we continue to decouple both parties from a more um, corporatist worldview, where they're both historically very beholden, at least for my lifetime, the lifetime of the exacerbation of the climate crisis, let's say the last 30 years or so, have been very much captured by corporate interest. You do have the sense that there's more balkanization, in part because those those areas that, that they don't agree on, you know, if both parties are agreeing that they're going to take money from big business, that they're genu- generally going to deregulate the banks, et cetera, et cetera, what we're left with is those issues that are extremely polarizing. So the entire conversation revolves around, you know issues around which there's still a lot of controversy, uh, abortion, affirmative action, things like that. When we step back and are able to talk about things that are actually populist, then there are a lot of issues that majorities of Americans actually do agree on. Whether it's universal healthcare, or fifteen dollar minimum wage, or yes, the environment. And it's so fascinating to see watch this political process where the pundit class seems to be one step behind the political class in this one instance, and they're still asking questions like. What's your top priority? As though there's not an existential threat on multiple prongs where we have to immediately um, act fast on climate change, immediately implement a Green New Deal, immediately implement Medicare for All, immediately implement all of these things as though there is like a pick and, uh, an ability to pick and choose like there might have been at some other distant more halcyon point in American history.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's, it's the way I think of it is, you know, almost no matter what your political hopes are, climate change has a role. You know, if you care about wealth creation, if you care about income inequality, if you care about conflict because there's a relationship between temperature and war, if you care about domestic assault, if you care about crime rates, if you care about famine and hunger, and if you care about mental illness.
1: You said that human cognition will decline 21% if the carbon dioxide parts per million continue along the expected trajectory by the year 2100. Human cognition, 21% decline. I mean, that's that's extraordinary. For every uh, half degree of warming, there will be a 10 to 20% increase in the likelihood of armed conflict. You know, you, you talk about forced migration. You know, six, there's 65 million people already displaced and the numbers that we can expect for that with a continued climate change will go through the roof. I mean, which of those? Uh, when I when I'm reading these stats, every round trip ticket uh, on a flight from New York to London costs the Arctic three more square meters of ice. And that's that's extraordinary. It makes you want to hop on a scooter home and never get on any other kind of transportation again. But of course, it's not individual consumption for the most part that's driving the bulk of 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 these emissions. Is that right?
2: Well, it depends on how you calculate it. But what I would say is that individual action alone is insufficient to the scale of the crisis. You know, you can, you can go vegan, you can never fly again, but these problems are so big and so systemic that we really need a policy response to address them at anything like the scale that is required. There's also a kind of this problem of um, distributed causes and impacts in the sense that if I'm flying from New York to London, I'm melting that, that three square meters of ice, I don't really see that impact in my own life that is maybe especially true and even most problematically true at the international level where nations could take dramatic rapid action decarbonizing and yet have basically no impact on the climate that they're living through over the next few decades unless the rest of the world follows suit that's not exactly true for china and the us and maybe india but if you're dealing with most other countries in the world Uh, Most of them are not responsible for more than one or two percent of carbon emissions. And these are some of even the industrialized nations. The less developed nations are responsible for even less. Why should Australia decarbonize? Like, it's not going to change anything unless the whole rest of the world is decarbonizing as well, which is one reason I think we really need a kind of coordinated global effort to um, address this problem. And it's one reason why I find the contemporary political moment geopolitically so concerning, because, you know, if you had to imagine a challenge that was big enough and urgent enough to call into action, call into being a real network of genuine global cooperation, it would be the climate crisis. And yet we're facing it at this moment when so many nations of the world are retreating from those commitments, retreating from those networks, and embracing a more nativistic, narrowly self-interested idea of of their own self-interest. So, you you know, you mentioned earlier that the fire is burning in the Amazon. The logic facing Jair Bolsonaro is actually from a, narrowly defined, self-interested perspective you know, encourages the deforestation of the rainforest. He, he sees opportunities for economic growth in developing that land. And given the system that we live in today, where China is buying Brazilian beef that's fed on Brazilian soybeans that are grown in that land, and so are European countries and so are American conglomerates there are strong incentives to to continue that project. Um, Unfortunately, globally, if he continues to deforest the Amazon, it will be catastrophic for all of us. So we need some kind of a system that squares those problematic um, systems and aligns the interests of individual nations with the interests of the planet as a whole. One other thing I would mention is I think that we've really underutilized the value of the public health part of this story. there is a way that public health concerns really do feel imminent immediate to the down to the level of the individual and they are quite concerning you know it's they raise rates of asthma and um, dementia and Parkinson's they um, pollution changes your the rate of um, schizophrenia and ADHD and autism. it makes uh, babies grow less well in the womb it increases the rates of premature birth and low birth weight e- absolutely everything about the human animal that we would want to protect. Um, if we were really designing a system to to uh, produce robust individual health, is damaged by pollution and warming.
1: At at some point, you explain that the air pollution in in China was such that the Chinese apo- air apocalypse of 2013 peaked um, such that smog was responsible for a third of all deaths in the country
2: a million people died that year in china because of air pollution and china's actually gotten better since then but india is now hit um, is now being hit with it most intensely and um, will probably continue to be going forward in a certain sense india is really the kind of the ground zero for climate impacts generally the direct heat droughts flooding um, they have a lot of river flooding to be expected and these these pollution effects are all quite quite scary this problem is too big to even describe in any single way it's too big to try to rally support or mobilize with any single rhetorical strategy, and it's too big to try to solve with any one silver bullet solution. It's an all-encompassing, universal story which includes all of us in all of our lives. In a way, that, you know, this this may sound kind of like a naive revelation, but I'm a lifelong New Yorker. I spent my whole life thinking, because I lived in the modern world, I lived outside of nature. This reporting has really taught me in a very deep way that you know. We are all living in nature, like when we go about our lives, even when we're walking on concrete streets, taking elevators up to the 70th floor, that's all happening within nature. And when nature is disturbed and perturbed, it will affect all of us. Now, all of us will come to that story from different places and we may have different concerns. We may, may be motivated by different appeals. We might have be motivated one day by social justice concerns and another by public health concerns and another simply marveling at the kind of the tragic poetic majesty of this saga which is unfolding before our eyes with you know half of all vertebrate mammals dying since 1970 the collapse of insect ecosystems etc but my own feeling w- is that for a very long time climate journalism in particular but climate advocacy as well was so narrowly targeted in how it messaged that very few people really got the full picture of the story they were not told how fast this was all happening. They were not told how universal it was. We heard so much about sea level rise that we could have thought if we didn't live on the coast, we'd be safe. But when you know everything you know about how agricultural yields could be impacted or the conflict in, um, impacts that we're talking about, the economic impacts, you know that this is, you know it's, it's all encompassing. And I think we also were told um, that it was not nearly as bad or not nearly as scary as it truly is. We heard a lot about this level of warming two degrees which scientists call the threshold of catastrophe and island nations of the world call genocide. And whenever we heard about it or read about it in the newspaper, it would be scientists saying we need to do everything we can to avoid this level of warming. I think practically speaking, it's about our best case scenario. But I think all of that messaging led us to believe that it was something more like a worst case scenario. And that has left us, I think, really unprepared until quite recently to respond to this crisis with the urgency that it really demands. I think the last year has changed that landscape quite a bit. The politics around climate have really moved quite a lot, and the the plans being put forward in the Democratic um, primary are one of many signs of that. This is a whole different category of seriousness than any American politicians have ever proposed before. And yet, we're still so far from where we need to be if we take seriously the UN's admonition that in order to avert catastrophic warming, we need to have our global carbon emissions by 2030 which means, they say, a World War II scale mobilization against climate change starting this year, 2019. Now, for all of the good feelings that you can have thinking about the Green New Deal, thinking about Greta, thinking about Extinction Rebellion, I think it's clear that we're still quite far from inputting, from implementing a World War II scale mobilization. And that's just another argument for more activity, more urgency, more immediacy. And I think it's also an argument for more political change. So the path is clear to me. It's through a new kind of politics to a new kind of policy, but we need that very, very quickly in order to avoid some of these truly scary, even catastrophic impacts coming in the next couple of decades.
1: my interview with journalist Kate Aronoff about how Bernie Sanders' solution to the climate crisis works and why it's likely to succeed. I'm so happy to be joined today by my former colleague at The Intercept, Kate Aronoff, who is an incredibly important climate writer and who has recently penned a piece about Bernie Sanders' new climate policy. Thank you for joining me today, Kate.
0: Thanks for having me.
1: So the title of your piece is, Bernie Sanders' climate plan is more radical than his opponents and more likely to succeed. So can you start by telling me what is so radical or unique about Bernie Sanders' plan and how does it compare favorably to other plans that are floating around out there? Sure,
0: yeah. Well, I mean, it's a very long plan, so I'm not going to pretend to be able to cover all of it, but I think there's a couple of things that really stand out. I think, one, just the scale is so much bigger than other plans. So $16.3 trillion toward a clean energy economy is something that even stands out in a field where presidential candidates seem, I mean, happily so to be competing for how many trillions of dollars they can spend on uh, a clean energy transition, which is a great place to be compared to where we were in 2016. So that, I mean, I think that that figure alone is certainly what's made headlines. And that's been seen as something that, that really sort of makes this plan stand out. The extent to which this plan was crafted sort of in conversation with groups that have been doing work on these issues for a long, long time, Um, so climate justice groups, environmental justice groups, um, I think that really shines through in the plan. I mean, I don't don't think there's another plan that mentions the HEMES principles of environmental justice quite the way this does, or if at all. Making equity non-negotiable, I think, is something that this plan does, um, that, that's a bit unique in, in other plans. And that extends not just to looking at the U.S. itself, um, but also looking internationally. And so um, the plan sort of gets into this idea of fair shares, which is something that particularly groups and, and sort of delegates coming from the global south have voiced for a long, long time in spaces like the UNFCCC, um, the United Nations Framework on Climate Change um, talks, accounting for the fact that the United States is a historical emitter has gotten very rich by burning fossil fuels for a very long time. And so this plan sort of attempts, uh, looking at you know some of the latest research on this, to account for that, to say, you know, what has the U.S. done? What is it that we sort of owe to the global community? Another thing that really stands out to me, as someone who's been looking at a lot of these, is uh, the idea of public ownership. It's something that really has not sort of factored in. I think we see a lot of talk about investing in renewable energy, um, investing in solar and wind. We don't really see a lot about who owns that, right? And so um, solar and wind right now is predominantly dominated by the private sector. And that leaves some gaps, right? However much uh, investment there is, however excited um, these companies are to invest in the clean energy future, there will inevitably gaps because the private sector you know, has a certain set of motivations that public bodies don't. And so um, sort of drawing on the legacy of the New Deal, um, drawing on sort of the legacy in particular of institutions like the TVA, But sort of saying, you know, the power can be run in the public interest, right? Um, We can have power that, you know, the whole goal of it, right, is to give people electricity. um, And in this case, make sure that that electricity is not sort of cooking the planet. Um, And so really, you know, extending financing uh, for communities to um, rest control over their uh, utilities and to make sure that they're run really in the public interest, make sure that they're run on renewable power. um, That's something that I think is is very unique and, and actually, you know, looks a lot like proposals that we see abroad um, where public ownership is not sort of um, as taboo as it is here in the us the plan also lays out kind of a theory of change for how to get this and so we have seen I think a lot of very detailed um, and I think very impressive plans coming from across the field but I think what you know really differentiates this Um, is saying, for one, that we, you know, have clear enemies in this fight. That, you know, it's not that we've all sort of landed in this place. Um, By happenstance, not that we're all sort of collectively, individually responsible in the same way for this. Some 90 companies are responsible for two-thirds of emissions in the the last several decades. And so um, the fossil fuel industry is a clear enemy. Fossil fuel interests have reliably stymied action, have reliably stopped progress on this front. And uh, what this plan says is that they are to blame, right? And and sort of raising the possibility that they should be held accountable for lying to the public, as as you know, companies like Exxon and Shell have, and really naming the fact that altogether there are more of us than there are of them. And I think that extends a lot from you know something we've seen a lot through the, through the Sanders campaign, which is that we're not going to win this fight, um, particularly on climate, by having the best. Plan, right? Even if this is a very good plan, but by sort of leveraging the political power to make that necessary against sort of incredible, incredible odds, which is the most powerful industry this world has ever known.
1: I think that's such a really important point. The extent to which throughout the all of the plans that are kind of being introduced by this campaign, that it's not enough just to say what is intended, but to have a strategy, a political strategy for getting there. And that's part of what was so interesting about your piece is that you spend some time talking about how cap and trade, which at some point was put forward as what was going to get us out of this mess, ended up falling apart because of a lack of um, a political movement behind us. Behind it, rather, can you tell, explain to us a little bit what what cap and trade was thought to be able to do, what it what it means, what it meant, and why it didn't end up panning out the way people intended?
0: I think there are two things to consider when we talk about cap and trade. So one, I think, is the policy itself of cap and trade. And so, in a basic level, a cap and trade system is one in which the government sets a limit on the amount of um, whether it's carbon dioxide or greenhouse gas emissions more generally that can be you know emitted throughout the economy you can pick and choose which sectors are included in that but you set that limit and then uh, you allocate the government will allocate a certain number of credits to various polluting firms if a firm falls under that cap then they can sell their credits to another firm and that creates this thing called a carbon market which you know sparked a lot of debate around the time of cap and trade. So that's that's a big part of what the policy was and certainly kind of what most of the conversation revolved around it. Um, as many journalists have pointed out, the bill uh, that was being discussed in 2009 and 2010 was much more than that. So there were actually some, you know, really sort of interesting parts of, of you know, the House bill was called Waxman-Markey that, uh, you know, would have done a lot of things that I think, you know, Green New Deal proponents would, would be very excited about, um, electric charging stations, R&D, all this stuff. And so it was this sort of wide-ranging bill, but all sort of centered around this idea of cap and trade. That's the policy of what that was. And then um, there's the politics behind it, which were a bit different. And so there were a lot of groups sort of interested in getting climate policy at the time. The sort of strategy that ended up carrying the day was that, Um, Republicans uh, were the main barrier to climate action, understandably so. And what uh, a number of of cap-and-trade advocates thought, particularly groups like the Environmental Defense Fund, you know, very, very large green organizations, and a number of Democrats thought that the way to get Republican votes was to go through the industry. And so very early on... um, entered into agreements and negotiations with uh, members of the fossil fuel industry, big utilities, a number of Fortune 500 companies, um, and asked them, you know, what do you want to see from a climate bill? Um, what, what should this look like? That worked for a little while. Um, they did come up with a bill, it got through the house. Um, what they ended up seeing uh, was that the, the industry backed out as soon as they could. And not only that, but even when they were sort of on board, the, the companies who were a part of the U.S. Climate Action Partnership, um, which was one of the main groups that was pushing for this. Um, at the same time, we're a part of groups like the American Petroleum Institute, like the Chamber of Commerce, who are actively pushing against the idea that there should be climate legislation and undermining the chances that that bill to get through. Um, and so this whole strategy, the idea that we have to you know, be negotiating with corporations, that this sort of seeing bipartisanship as a virtue, getting a policy through by any means necessary, that that would be the way to get climate action, just didn't work. Um, it it didn't work out, and, you know, there's a whole other conversation about cap-and-trade, which is whether it would have done what we needed it to do. And I I don't want to get into that here, but I think there are big questions as to whether, even if the policy had passed, um, as loaded it up as it was with compromises, would have expanded offshore drilling, um, severely limited the decision-making authority of the EPA, would that have been good for the climate? Who knows? Many groups at the time, like Greenpeace and Friends of the Earth— Argue that it wouldn't. That that actually would have been worse than nothing, in large part because it had been so watered down by the
1: industry. Despite this consistent reality that uh, these compromise positions this effort to compromise with industry this idea that getting Republican buy-in is going to be what actually advances the net good of our progressive policies you know you see again and again that not come to fruition and but there are still people today who including those who are also in this 2020 race who still seem to see the, uh, some innate value in bipartisanship and who will still continue to downplay the extent to which industry interests uh financial interests, corporate interests, um, are actively thwarting the policies that our side, you know, progressives actually want to advance, and still framing it as um, about good guys versus bad guys, well-intentioned um, actors versus bad actors, um, and who aren't looking, you know, very, you know, closely at the extent to which money and, and industry interests are moving the needle here, so that we have. Democrats as well, who are from states with large, let's say coal or other fossil fuel interests, who also repeatedly end up on the wrong side of this issue, but can use their kind of capital D Democrat status as a way to kind of, you know, shield themselves from broader, at least national critique. Again, including some people who are still in this race. So I don't know, does that does that become, you know, frustrating to you as a political matter, as someone who is so knowledgeable, from both a scientific and political perspective, that there are people who are still having this argument that we shouldn't be following the dollars. You know that there was this huge controversy earlier this year when some leftists pointed out that Beto O'Rourke, for instance, was taking fossil fuel money, and people acted as though it was an ad hominem attack, right? Like we were just mad at O'Rourke or you know hating on O'Rourke, as opposed to saying, hey. There is a fundamental conflict between people who are taking money from this industry um, and the ability to pass genuinely progressive legislation.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think on a certain level, it's just a little bit lazy not to look at that, right? Um, To see that whatever it is that ExxonMobil or BP is saying about climate policy, they have a very different material interest in the fate of that policy, right? I think, you know, we saw this recently in Washington State, where in the 2018 midterm elections, BP, a company which, you know, for a long time has said that they support a carbon tax, a global carbon tax, they spent, I believe it was $13 million fighting um, a very modest carbon tax in Washington State. And, you know, I think that should be proof enough, as if everything else, you know, in these these companies' business model, we're in, that we shouldn't take these companies' talking points at face value, right? And and I think that extends in, in a big way to politicians who who you know have had their careers bankrolled by these same industries, right? And that you know you can, on the one hand, sort of you know. See uh, Republicans saying that they believe in climate change, that they believe the science, or you know whatever else they're 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 you know is popular to say at the time. They may well say that, but um, you know look at their voting record. Look at who they're taking money from. Exxon Mobil is not just giving money to politicians for fun, right? It's like they have a real goal in mind when they make political donations and they make political donations mostly to Republicans. The fossil fuel industry is one of the most partisan political donors um, out there, but they, they, you know, also give across the political spectrum because they're trying to hedge their bets, right? Don't take for granted just very, very, you know, real material interests that that corporations especially have. And, you know, don't seek to, to like, Hinge climate policy on making it appeal to either the fossil fuel industry or its political arm, which, you know, at this point is functionally the Republican Party. And, And I think that, you know, we don't have time for a sort of lowest common denominator approach, especially on climate, right? There's just very clear realities about what we need to do. The science is very, very clear um, about what needs to happen and and sort of, you know, watering on a policy so that it gets through just isn't enough, right? I mean, it could be, you know, as many argued cap and trade was worse than nothing to, you know, expend all this political energy, enter in this huge fight uh, for a policy that actually doesn't get us where we need to be.
1: I mean, I think we are in a place already now knowing that we are in a political climate where we have people like Bernie Sanders coming out with these meaningful policies and everyone is kind of being pressured in a way that haven't been historically to pay serious attention to this. But how do you go about conveying to people the enormity of what um, is required so that they don't see a you know $16 trillion price tag and say, gosh, that's expensive. They say, gosh, that's a real steal compared to what we would be spending um, to try to dig us out of the hole that we are barreling toward at breakneck speed.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think the plan actually does this kind of well in doing exactly that, right? Is to say, you know, this is how much this plan will cost. Here's how much
1: not doing anything will
0: cost. Or here's how much only doing, you know, a quarter as much as what we need to will cost. Because I think it can be difficult, you know, especially for folks, you know, living in the U.S. And particularly if you're not in a particularly climate vulnerable part of the U.S., if you're, you know, Living, you know, a life like I do is fairly comfortable and you know insulated from climate impacts. It's it's it is you know can be difficult to recognize the sort of very temperature changes and things like that, right? Um, I think there are moments that can sort of jar people out of that. I live in New York, Hurricane Sandy. I think for a lot of people, was just a big eye opening moment. I think part of it, you know, is not only to say sort of how grave the situation is, which it absolutely is, but also to recognize that sort of the economy we've built, the economy that's gotten into this mess, is not doing right by a lot of people for other reasons too, right? It's like the fossil fuel funded system that we have built is screwing over workers, um, it's screwing over working people kind of across the board through sort of big differences between corporate profits and wages, uh, through, uh, you know, staggering inequality. Um, it's only gotten worse uh, in, in the last several decades um, as, you know, along the same timeline that carbon emissions have been put in the air. Um, so to say that actually the world a Green New Deal can build is one that, you know, fixes a lot of other problems in the economy too. We need a, a society that's resilient to be able to handle the kinds of changes that are already coming toward us. Um, and that requires a society that's uh, more equal, than, than the one we have now, um, that can, you know, make more people's lives better. Um, and I think that's kind of what the Green New Deal sort of brilliantly does, is to say, look, like, there's other things wrong with the economy other than the fact that it runs on fossil fuels. Um, how can we sort of think about those problems, too? And, and to see those two problems is really one and the same.
1: What would you say to folks who have critique of, for example, the increased role of the government in the energy sector who look at something like the TVA, the Tennessee Valley Authority model, and say, you know what, here's just some more Bernie socialism, and we're not Venezuela, and and I don't like that, I'm scared. You know, what, what would you say to those folks? Energy has never been a free market.
0: I mean, in the United States or elsewhere, like, and I'm, you know, myself or other socialists are not the only ones saying that. Rick Perry said that last year, um, that there is no free market (laughs) when it comes to energy, right? Globally, fossil fuels are subsidized listening to $5.1 trillion, the IMF found. Um, There is an enormous amount of state control and state support that goes into keeping the fossil fuel economy afloat, right? There was just a utility in, in, in Ohio, which pushed to be bailed out. By the government in order to keep coal plants and and nuclear plants running, that is not you know the free market in action. That is active state support for a certain type of energy. And so, what I would say is, it's it's insane to argue that there isn't sort of government intervention in the economy right now, particularly with regards to energy, um, which is you know one of the most regulated sectors and regulated sort of badly in in favor of, of the fossil fuel economy. And what I would say is that you know we need to sort of shift the priorities that right now are embedded into our energy system, um, to shift it away from fossil fuels, to incentivize incentivize renewable energy to dir- invest directly and make public investments in renewable energy to give tax breaks, you know, in the way that we give tax breaks to um, the fossil fuel industry year after year after year. There's plenty of quote unquote sort of market mechanisms and market signals that are embedded in the Green New Deal. And uh, it, it says, you know, we should not be afraid of public ownership, of, you know, things like the TVA, extending that very successful model of getting affordable power to big parts of the country that wouldn't have it otherwise, and to, you know, really just see that as, as where we're headed, particularly as coal is... is Actively being outcompeted by things like natural gas, as even oil companies are sort of fretting right now about their profits. We have a, an energy system which is is bound up with all all kinds of state support. Let's redirect that. Let's like actually make this this work. You know, toward the future and and toward a healthier world.
1: Well, I'm convinced, Kate. But what do you say to folks that say, "Sure, it sounds good. Like, I don't want the planet to implode, but this will never work. This isn't going anywhere." Um, the plan is too big and too ambitious. In, in your, the title of your article you say, because it's so ambitious, it's more likely to succeed. What do you mean by that?
0: I think what the plan does really well, and what the Green New Deal does really well, is to make the case that you know it's not just that we need to take this on, not just that we need to solve this very dire problem, but that in the course of taking on this problem, people's lives can get better. That we can you know really sort of improve living standards across the board. And so in doing that, I think it really reframes something um, that has plagued environmentalism for a long time, um, which is this idea that we need to sacrifice in order to solve this. right? And that everybody needs to give something up. Everybody needs to sort of tighten their belts and basically and, and austerity politics, um, <laughs> for lack of a better word, right?
1: Right. Give up, give up our straws and that's going to get us there
0: yeah, if we give up our straws, we recycle more, if everyone, you know, eats more organic salads or something like that, um, that'll solve the problem. And I think, you know, what what Sanders does, what I think folks in the Sunrise Movement have emphasized, what Alexander Ocasio-Cortez has emphasized, is that a, a couple people need to sacrifice, right? That, uh, you know, fossil fuel executives certainly cannot live their lives if you own a private jet. That's something that will become problematic in the course of dealing with the climate crisis. But that, you know, for most people, Um, we are simply not consuming enough in order to be the problem, right? In the way that fossil fuel executives are. And that's not to say that parts of our lifestyle won't change. That's not to say that, you know, we shouldn't be eating less meat. We shouldn't be flying as much as we do. Um, But there are big societal factors which keep people from making those choices, right? And that we just don't live in a society right now that really sets people up to live low-carbon lives. That is for any number of reasons. You can get into a sort of 300, 400, 500-year history of capitalism um, to tell you why that's the case. But it's all to say that, uh, you know, we need to build a society in which that is possible for, for many, many people, um, whether that's, you know, investing in, in meat alternatives through um, a Green New Deal, um, whether that's in, you know, making high-speed rail and building out that network um, so that people don't need to fly as much or drive as much, making public transit accessible, making housing more efficient and affordable um, for more people, um, that, you know, the Green New Deal, and, and I think Bernie Sanders' plans sort of articulates this really well, it's about investment, it's about investing to make that kind of world possible, which is, you know, I think a a happier world overall.
1: Bernie often encourages us to recall that in a country much less wealthy and technologically sophisticated than the one we live in today, FDR transformed the American economy for the better in just a few short years. Thanks to the New Deal, seniors can rely on at least some material support in their later years. We don't have to worry about our local bank collapsing and taking our life savings with it. Federal agencies like the National Labor Relations Board and the SEC provide some protection from greedy employers and Wall Street firms. Somehow, it feels like older generations responded to the challenges of their time, not with, how can we pay for this, but rather, how can we make this happen? And very often, they did. Here's the thing, though. Americans didn't just randomly become pessimistic about the government's capacity to solve problems. There has been a concerted effort to convince us that there's nothing the government can do that private enterprise cannot do better. It's a tragedy, really, that climate change, the greatest collective action problem humanity has ever faced, comes at the tail end of a 40-year campaign to convince us that we cannot solve problems together. That is why Bernie's campaign is so truly revolutionary. Not because he wants us to replace capitalism with some Soviet-style bureaucracy, as some on the right seem to believe, but because, for the first time in generations, Someone is standing up and saying, yes, together we can tackle these problems. Yes, we are up to the enormous tasks that lie before us. Take a step back. We have all the information we need about climate change. We know for a fact that our current course will end in disaster for billions of people. As David said, everyone's life will be affected, from the farmer facing droughts and floods, the homeowner facing storms and fires. Earlier this year, the UN warned that climate change threatens our very food supply. We understand the problem, we know what needs to be done, and yes, we have the means to do it. We don't have a lot of time, but we do have time. What stands in our way are a handful of very powerful people and institutions that benefit from the status quo. It's not going to be easy. But never forget, there are a hell of a lot more of us than there are of them. We can do this. That's it for this week. Let us know what you think at HearTheBurn at sanders.com. or send us a tweet with the hashtag HearTheBurn. If you haven't already, please take a moment to rate, review, or like us on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, YouTube, or wherever you're listening. Transcripts will be up soon. Till next time.